0: Welcome to a recording of a paper titled, Cognitive Load Theory, Research that Teachers Really Need to Understand, written and produced by the Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation, or CESE, read by Sally Colmeyer. To read the paper, complete with reference material, please visit the CESE website at cese.nsw.gov.au Let's start with a brief overview. Why cognitive load theory? To improve student performance, teachers need to understand the evidence base that informs and helps improve their practice. An area of research with significant implications for teaching practice is cognitive load theory. Cognitive load theory was recently described by British educationalist Dylan Williams as the single most important thing for teachers to know. Grounded in a robust evidence base, Cognitive Load Theory provides theoretical and empirical support for explicit models of instruction. Research in Cognitive Load Theory demonstrates that instructional techniques are most effective when they're designed to accord with how human brains learn and use knowledge. This paper describes the research on Cognitive Load Theory and what it means for more effective teaching practice. The first part of the paper explains how human brains learn according to cognitive load theory and outlines the evidence base for the theory. The second part of the paper examines the implications of cognitive load theory for teaching practice and describes some recommendations that are directly transferable to the classroom. So what is cognitive load theory? Cognitive load theory is built upon two commonly accepted ideas. The first is that there is a limit to how much new information the human brain can process at one time. The second is that there are no known limits to how much stored information can be processed at one time. The aim of cognitive load research is therefore to develop instructional techniques and recommendations that fit within the characteristics of working memory in order to maximise learning. Cognitive load theory supports explicit models of instruction because such models tend to accord with how human brains learn most effectively. Explicit instruction involves teachers clearly showing students what to do and how to do it, rather than having students discover or construct information for themselves. Hattie summarises explicit instruction as an approach in which The teacher decides the learning intentions and success criteria, makes them transparent to the students, demonstrates them by modelling, evaluates if they understand what they've been told by checking for understanding, and retelling them what they have been told by tying it all together with closure. Cognitive load theory emerged from the work of educational psychologist John Sweller and colleagues in the 1980s and 90s. They assert, The implications of working memory limitations on instructional design can hardly be overestimated. Anything beyond the simplest cognitive activities appear to overwhelm working memory. Any instructional design that flouts or merely ignores working memory limitations inevitably is deficient. Cognitive load theory is based on a number of widely accepted theories about how human brains process and store information. These assumptions include that human memory can be divided into working memory and long-term memory, that information is stored in the long-term memory in the form of schemas, and that processing new information results in cognitive load on working memory, which can affect learning outcomes. Let's take a look at how the human brain learns. In order to understand cognitive load theory, it's necessary to understand how working memory and long-term memory process and store information. Working memory is the memory system where small amounts of information are stored for a very short duration. Working memory roughly equates with what we are conscious of at any one time. Clark, Kirschner and Sweller call it the limited mental space in which we think. Research suggests that an average person can only hold about four chunks of information in their working memory at one time although there is evidence to indicate differences in working memory capacity between individuals. Long-term memory is the memory system where large amounts of information are stored semi-permanently. Clark, Kirchner and Sweller call long-term memory that big mental warehouse of things we know, be they words, people, grand philosophical ideas or skateboard tricks. Cognitive load theory assumes that knowledge is stored in long-term memory in the form of schemas. A schema organises elements of information according to how they'll be used. According to schema theory, skilled performance is developed through building ever greater numbers of increasingly complex schemas by combining elements of lower-level schemas into higher-level schemas. There is no limit to how complex schemas can become. An important process in schema construction is automation, whereby information can be processed automatically with minimal conscious effort. Automaticity occurs after extensive practice. Schemas provide a number of important functions that are relevant to learning. First, they provide a system for organizing and storing knowledge. Second, and crucially for cognitive load theory, they reduce working memory load. This is because, although there are a limited number of elements that can be held in working memory at one time, a schema constitutes only a single element in working memory. In this way, a high-level schema with potentially infinite informational complexity can effectively bypass the limits of working memory. Learning to read is a good example of schema construction and automation. Children begin to learn to read by constructing schemas for squiggles on a page, or letters. These simple schemas for letters are used to construct higher order schemas when they're combined into words. The schemas for words, in turn, are combined into higher order schemas for phrases and sentences. This process of ever more complex schema construction eventually allows readers to scan a page filled with squiggles and deduce meaning from it. With extensive practice, readers can derive meaning from print with minimal conscious effort. If working memory is overloaded, there is a greater risk that the content being taught will not be understood by the learner, will be misinterpreted or confused, and will not be effectively encoded in long-term memory, hence that learning will be slowed down. The automation of schemas reduces the burden on working memory because when information can be accessed automatically, the working memory is freed up to process new information. Here's an example of how the limitations of working memory can be overcome by schema construction and automation. Try to remember the following combination of letters. Y, M, R, E, O, M. In this case, each letter constitutes one item, so you're being required to remember six items at once. Now try to remember the following combination of letters. M, E, M, O, R, Y. In this case, you're still required to remember the same six items. However, because you have a schema in your long-term memory for the word memory, you're able to chunk the letters into just one item. Now your working memory is freed up to remember other items. Now let's have a look at the types of cognitive load. Cognitive load theory identifies three different types of cognitive load. Intrinsic, extraneous and germane load. The three types of cognitive load are generally assumed to be additive, that is, intrinsic load plus extraneous load plus germane load equals total cognitive load. Cognitive overload occurs when the total cognitive load exceeds the working memory capacity of the learner. Let's have a bit of a closer look at each type of cognitive load. First up, intrinsic cognitive load. Intrinsic cognitive load relates to the inherent difficulty of the subject matter being learnt. In simple terms, intrinsic cognitive load can be described as the necessary type of cognitive load. Two factors influence intrinsic cognitive load the complexity of the material and the prior knowledge of the learner. This means that subject matter that is difficult for a novice may be very easy for an expert. For example, The task of learning to write the letters of the alphabet is likely to have a high intrinsic load for a child in the first year of school, but the same task would have a much lower intrinsic load for a child in the second or third year of school. Many theorists agree that intrinsic cognitive load can be altered by instructional techniques that make complex material easier to learn. One way to lower the intrinsic cognitive load of material is the simple-to-complex approach, where the elements of the material are introduced to the learner in a simple-to-complex order, so that the learner doesn't initially experience the full complexity of the material. A second method is the part-whole approach, where the individual elements of the material are introduced to the learner first, before the integrated task is introduced. A third approach is to introduce the material in its full complexity from the beginning, but then to direct the attention of the learner to the individual interacting elements. Van Marienboer and Sweller state that both simple to complex and part-whole approaches work to reduce the cognitive load of learners by introducing single, simple elements at the beginning and gradually increasing complexity. The second type of cognitive load is extraneous cognitive load. Extraneous cognitive load relates to how the subject matter is taught. According to Van Merrienboer and Sweller, extraneous cognitive load is load that is not necessary for learning, that is, schema construction and automation, and that can be altered by instructional interventions. In simple terms, extraneous load is the bad type of cognitive load because it doesn't directly contribute to learning. Cognitive load theorists consider that instructional design will be most effective when it minimises extraneous load in order to free up the capacity of working memory. To quote Sweller, Van Merienboer and Paas, a combination of high intrinsic and high extraneous cognitive load may be fatal to learning because working memory may be substantially exceeded it may be essential to design instruction in a manner that reduces extraneous cognitive load. Theorists of cognitive load have identified a number of instructional approaches that work to reduce extraneous cognitive load in order to increase the efficacy of instruction. Some of these will be described in the final section of the paper. The third type of cognitive load is germane cognitive load. Germane cognitive load refers to the load imposed on the working memory by the process of learning. That is, the process of transferring information into the long-term memory through schema construction. For this reason, germane cognitive load can be understood in simple terms as the good type of cognitive load. Theorists of cognitive load assert that instructional material has maximum effectiveness when it reduces extraneous load, which is not relevant to learning, and increases germane load, which is directly relevant to learning. Gergetz, Scheiter, and Sjerniak explain that germane load is caused by a supportive instructional design and is helpful for effective learning. To quote Sweller, Van Merienboer, and Paas. The combination of decreasing extraneous cognitive load and at the same time increasing germane cognitive load involves redirecting attention. Learners' attention must be withdrawn from processes that are not relevant to learning and directed toward processes that are relevant to learning and in particular toward the construction and mindful abstraction of schemas. Theorists of cognitive load generally consider intrinsic, extraneous and germane load to be additive. For this reason, the approach of decreasing extraneous cognitive load while increasing germane cognitive load will only be effective if the total cognitive load remains within the limits of working memory. And now a bit about the evidence base for cognitive load theory. Cognitive load theory is supported by a significant number of Randomised Controlled Trials, or RCTs. This large body of evidence indicates that instruction tends to be more effective when it's designed according to how human brains process and store information. The worked example effect is one instructional approach recommended by cognitive load research that's supported by a substantial number of RCTs. The worked example effect was first demonstrated in the 1980s. In one early study, Cooper and Sweller designed a series of experiments in which high school math students were required to learn how to solve a range of simple algebra problems. They found that students who were taught using lots of worked examples learnt more quickly than students who were required to solve the problems themselves. Further, They found that the students taught using worked examples were not only better able to solve similar problems on subsequent tests, but were also better able to solve transfer problems in which the same algebraic rules they had learned needed to be applied in different contexts. The effect has since been replicated in a large number of RCTs. In a meta-analysis of studies on the effectiveness of worked examples, Chrisman found an effect size of 0.52. The majority of studies in cognitive load research do not attempt to directly measure cognitive load itself, but rather aim to measure the effectiveness of instructional techniques designed to accord with the limitations of working memory. Studies of this type typically consist of a control group that receives a learning intervention using conventional techniques. For example, using independent problem-solving to learn a new skill, and a treatment group that receives a learning intervention using cognitive load techniques, for example, using worked examples to learn a new skill. Both groups are then tested to assess the effectiveness of the intervention. The test performance of participants is taken as an indirect measure of cognitive load, with high results on post-tests considered to indicate that cognitive load was successfully managed. It's worth noting that key proponents of cognitive load theory themselves acknowledge the need to identify a reliable means of directly measuring cognitive load in order to develop a more empirical basis to support the theory. Some studies do attempt to directly measure the cognitive load imposed by different instructional techniques with varying reliability. There are a variety of methods for attempting to measure cognitive load. One approach is to use physiological techniques such as measures of heart activity, brain activity or eye activity. Another approach is to use dual task techniques in which a secondary task is introduced in addition to the main learning task and impaired performance in the secondary task is taken to indicate high cognitive load. The majority of studies that attempt to measure cognitive load use subjective techniques, such as rating scales, in which participants are asked to indicate the level of cognitive load experienced. Questions around cognitive load research. The broad assumptions of cognitive load theory, that the capacity of working memory is limited and that learning is most effective when it's designed to accommodate these limitations, is generally not contested. It is worth noting, however, that a number of scholars have raised questions regarding some of the specific assumptions of the theory. These questions generally fall into three categories. Problems with the definitions of cognitive load, concerns about the methodological rigour of the research, and issues with its external generalizability. In regard to the definitions of cognitive load theory, An important question is whether the three different types of cognitive load, intrinsic, extraneous and germane, can be clearly distinguished. A second concern is whether the three types of cognitive load can indeed simply be added to determine the total cognitive load experienced by the learner, as has been claimed by cognitive load theorists. These concerns are important because if the types of cognitive load cannot be clearly separated, it becomes difficult to make practical recommendations on how teachers can best manage good, bad, and necessary load in a classroom environment. In regard to the methodological rigor of studies, the lack of a direct measure of cognitive load is a key concern. The lack of empirical indicators to distinguish between and measure the different types of load, intrinsic, extraneous, and germane, is also an issue. Finally, there are also concerns about whether cognitive load research is generalizable to realistic teaching environments. De Jong describes a range of problems with generalizability, including that cognitive overload rarely occurs in realistic learning settings, that the very short study time used in most cognitive load studies does not reflect the kinds of tasks and study time that would occur in real settings, and that study conditions are often deliberately constructed to demonstrate particular effects that would rarely occur in real learning situations. What does cognitive load theory mean for teaching practice? A bit about explicit teaching. The question of how people learn best has been the subject of significant debate which can be broadly divided into two approaches to teaching practice. On one side are those who believe that all people learn best when allowed to discover or construct some or all of the information themselves. On the other side are those who believe that learners do best when they're provided with explicit instructional guidance in which teachers clearly show students what to do and how to do it. Cognitive load theory provides theoretical and empirical support for the latter, explicit model of instruction. Leading theorists of cognitive load, such as Clark, Kirchner and Sweller, argue that decades of research clearly demonstrate that for novices comprising virtually all students, direct, explicit instruction is more effective and more efficient than partial guidance. So, when teaching new content and skills to novices, Teachers are more effective when they provide explicit guidance accompanied by practice and feedback, not when they require students to discover many aspects of what they must learn. It's important to note that cognitive load theorists don't advocate using all aspects of explicit instruction all the time. Indeed, they recognise the need for learners to be given the opportunity to work in groups and solve problems independently but assert that this should be used as a means for practising newly learnt content and skills, not to discover information themselves. Andrew Martin, for example, advocates a teaching model that's explicitly designed around cognitive load theory and the constraints of working memory. He suggests, however, That less structured approaches can also be an effective instructional method for students who are further along the novice-slash-expert continuum, if such instruction is designed with the constraints of working memory in mind. Martin states, These approaches are aimed at promoting learner independence while managing cognitive load appropriately, depending on the learner's novice or expert status. If the instructor provides some guiding principles, prior information, signposts along the way, and scaffolds and assistance where needed, there's less burden on working memory. There's some research to suggest that managing the cognitive load of learners through explicit instruction may also contribute to higher levels of motivation and engagement, although further research is required in this field. In addition to supporting explicit modes of instruction, cognitive load theory also asserts that teaching domain-specific skills is more effective than teaching generic skills. An example of a domain-specific skill might be that when faced with a problem such as A divided by B equals C, solve for A, one should multiply both sides by the denominator. An example of a generic skill in mathematics might be general problem-solving skills, such as the strategy of randomly generating moves until the correct solution is found. Cognitive load theorists suggest teaching domain-specific skills is more effective because, while general problem-solving skills are innate to humans and therefore don't need to be explicitly taught... Domain specific skills are not automatically acquired by learners without explicit teaching. And so to some recommendations for the classroom from Cognitive Load Research. Cognitive Load Theory has produced a number of recommendations regarding instructional techniques that are directly transferable to the classroom. A selection of these is now provided to illustrate how evidence based cognitive load research can be used by teachers to improve student outcomes. The first is the worked example effect. A worked example is a problem that has already been solved for the learner with every step fully explained and clearly shown. The worked example effect is the widely replicated finding that novice learners who are given worked examples to study perform better on subsequent tests than learners who are required to solve the equivalent problems themselves. The reason for this, according to cognitive load theory, is that unguided problem solving places a heavy burden on working memory, inhibiting the ability of the learner to transfer the information into their long-term memory. The learner may effectively solve the problem, but because their working memory was overloaded, they may not recognise and remember the rule that would allow them to quickly solve the same problem again in the future. The second technique relates to the expertise reversal effect. The expertise reversal effect is an important exception to the worked example effect. According to the expertise reversal effect, the heavy use of worked examples becomes less and less effective as learners' expertise increases, eventually becoming redundant. Or even counterproductive to learning outcomes. This means that some instructional procedures, such as worked examples, which assist learning for novices because they reduce cognitive load, are not effective for teaching more expert learners. While cognitive load theory supports fully guided instruction for novice learners, it also supports the gradual incorporation of more independent problem solving tasks as learners gain expertise. The third technique relates to the redundancy effect. Students don't learn effectively when their limited working memory is directed to unnecessary or redundant information. The redundancy effect occurs when learners are presented with additional information that's not directly relevant to learning, or with the same information in multiple forms. An example is a textbook which includes both text and a diagram that needlessly repeat information, or a PowerPoint presentation in which the presenter reads the text presented on the screen. Requiring learners to process redundant information inhibits learning because it overloads working memory. Cognitive load research shows that best practice is to remove redundant information from learning material. Sweller argues that most people assume that providing learners with additional information is at worst harmless and might be beneficial. Redundancy is anything but harmless. Providing unnecessary information can be a major reason for instructional failure. The fourth instructional technique relates to the split attention effect. The split attention effect occurs when learners are required to process two or more sources of information simultaneously in order to understand the material. This might occur, for example, when a diagram is used to explain a concept, but it cannot be understood without referring to a separate piece of explanatory text. In this instance, the learner is required to hold both sources of information in their working memory at the same time and to mentally integrate the two. This places a high cognitive load on the working memory, interfering with the ability of the learner to transfer the relevant information to their long-term memory. The split attention effect can be minimised or eliminated by physically integrating separate sources of information so that they don't have to be mentally integrated by the learner. Sweller, Van Merienboer and Paas argue that split attention occurs very commonly in instructional contexts. On the basis of dozens of experiments, under a wide variety of conditions, the evidence suggests overwhelmingly that it has negative consequences and should be eliminated wherever possible. The final instructional technique that we've included here out of cognitive load theory relates to the modality effect. The modality effect is associated with the split attention effect, but offers an alternative technique to reduce cognitive load to that of physically integrating separate sources of information. It involves decreasing extraneous load on working memory by using more than one mode of communication, that is, both visual and auditory. Evidence suggests that working memory can be subdivided into auditory and visual streams. So presenting information using both auditory and visual working memory can increase working memory capacity. For example, when using a diagram and text to explain a concept, the written text can be communicated in spoken form. Using both auditory and visual channels increases the capacity of working memory and facilitates more effective learning. Now let's look briefly at the relevance of cognitive load research in different contexts. Cognitive load theory is particularly relevant to teaching novice learners in so-called technical domains such as mathematics, science and technology. A large number of randomised controlled trials, or RCTs, demonstrate the effectiveness of the instructional approaches recommended by cognitive load theory in subjects such as maths and science. Far less research has been done on whether cognitive load theory is effective for teaching in less technical or more creative subject areas such as literature, history, art and other humanities subjects. The majority of studies on cognitive load don't consider how individual differences between learners might impact on cognitive load, with the exception of differences in expertise. De Jong identifies differences in spatial ability and working memory capacity, for example, as other important considerations. The literature on cognitive load theory is also silent on how other factors besides cognitive load might influence the effectiveness of learning. Roxana Moreno notes that cognitive load theory does not consider, for example, How factors such as a learner's motivation and beliefs about their own ability might influence the effectiveness of learning. In conclusion, cognitive load theory is a theory of how the human brain learns and stores knowledge. The theory is supported by a large number of RCTs and has significant implications for teaching practice. Cognitive load research demonstrates that instructional methods are most effective when designed to fit within the known limits of working memory, and therefore strongly supports guided models of instruction. Cognitive load theory offers a range of evidence-backed recommendations for educational practice, especially for teaching novice learners in technical subjects such as mathematics, science and technology.